Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Oh, Father God, uh, you love to speak to us, so we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I wonder what you find irresistible. Just think about that for a second. What can it, if you were to finish this sentence off, I can't resist, dot, 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 what would you say next? Come on, be honest. For some of you, it's chocolate, isn't it? It's chocolate. For others, bacon. Bacon, preferably with a stack of pancakes and maple syrup dripping off it. Ooh, Jesus, making me hungry just looking at it. Or what about, I mean, everybody's favorite, cake. Cake. Ah, oh, what, be what could be better than cake? Fluffiness. I mean, fluffiness is irresistible, isn't it? You can't resist a, a hug from, well, someone like Sophie Pright when she's, when she's wearing her fleecy, fleecy um, top there, or, or a puppy, or a kitten. Oh, fluffiness. It's to die for. Or, huh, this is an absolute killer in terms of irresistibility in my household. There's one member of my household who cannot resist impulse buys from the middle aisle of Lidl. <laughs> and that is why our house is full of unnecessary tat. <laughs> but I thought, sorry, sorry, Apologi apologies, little lovers. I love Lidl too. Um, I didn't say who <laughs> the household member was. <laughs> but I don't know what came to mind. What, 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 what got you there? Maybe it was something else. I don't know. But I suspect that not many of us would have answered that question by saying what Peter and John did in the passage we looked at last week in Acts 4. Arrested, thrown in jail overnight, and then hauled out to face the Sanhedrin, which was the ancient equivalent of the Prime Minister, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Lord Chief Justice. All wrapped up in one. They're charged, commanded, not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And what do they say? Verse 20. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. It's irresistible. They cannot but help. Speak of Jesus. But let's be honest. Even after everything we've seen and heard ourselves in this series of reading in Acts, 
<laughs> That's maybe not quite how we feel, is it? Even Randy Newman, who, as you might guess with a name like that, is American. <laughs> he is refreshingly honest about this. He's written a number of books, really helpful books, actually. I'd recommend all of them to you on evangelism. And yet I once heard him say, for some Christians, talking about Jesus comes naturally. And I'm not one of them. Some Christians just can't help sharing the gospel. I find I can help it easily. Some Christians say they can't sleep if they haven't shared the gospel with someone that day. I sleep just fine. Some Christians always pray when they're on a plane or a train for a conversation with the person next to them. I pray for an empty seat. <laughs> Why? Why the reluctance? He said, a lot of the time, it's because I'm still afraid of how it will go. Which I'm guessing is where the reluctance lies for us too, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes we're worried about what we might say and, and whether we'll know what to say. Sometimes we worry about blowing it and, and putting people off. But most of the time, our biggest fear is over how people will react. And there's good grounds for that fear, isn't there? Uh, when the world seems uh, totally against Christians, where, we, where we've gone from Christians being the good guys to, to them being well, a little bit irrelevant and kind of um, yeah, innocuous, marginalized, to now being seen as downright dangerous by the culture that we live in. So it's no wonder that we expect the worst if we think about stepping out to invite someone to one of those Christian Christmas events, a, a neighbor or a colleague. Or, or if we offer to pray, or we think about offering to pray with a patient or a client. And none of us would be surprised if we're mocked and marginalized if we were to defend God's good design for gender and marriage. But folks, the Bible isn't embarrassed about that for one minute. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 says, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Our expectations aren't wrong. The Bible confirms them. Trouble or persecution will come our way if we follow Jesus in a world that rejects him. And yet, God in his kindness has also caused Dr. Luke to record for us here how these early Christians responded to the kind of adversity that we are so, so afraid of. So we can learn three lessons from their example and be reassured that we don't need to be afraid and that it is perfectly safe and right to keep on speaking. Here's the first lesson. God has given us each other. Let's walk through this together, starting from verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Folks, this is a, a natural outworking of what it means to belong to one another as uh, Christ's family. Peter and John, first, was first instinct after their bruising encounter with Sanhedrin was to go to the place that God had given them, where they could receive support and help and encouragement from fellow brothers and sisters. There was this natural gravitational pull to that place. For them, as there should be for us too. So let me ask you, have you got such a place? Let's not be naive enough to think that we can live for Jesus 
on our own. Peter and John didn't, they didn't go, oh, hey, look, it's okay, we're apostles. <laughs> yeah, we, we just absolutely so rock. Do you see what we did in the Sanhedrin? We absolutely nailed that. Yes, you know, we don't need any help. No, they knew they couldn't handle this by themselves. They knew that they weren't made or meant to stand alone. They knew that they were not above needing a place to go where they could be open and honest about the challenges that they faced. You know, sometimes people, they, they, they say to me, I tried to go to midweek group, Ken. I, I tried it, or, or I went to one of the women's groups. I, I went a few times. And, oh, yeah, I didn't find it was really very helpful for me. Well, folks, you get what you give. Which is why we need to sow into those relationships. <laughs> not one week, not two, but six months. Give it a year. Sow into those relationships and they will be wonderfully rewarding as a haven of mutual support and encouragement in the storms of life. What a blessing it was for Peter and John that they had such a group to turn to. Because when they got there, they, they not only shared the problem with these guys, but they also lifted up by them, shared it with the Lord too. Do you see? Verse 24. And when they heard it, they, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, which is lesson number two in overcoming the fear of adversity. God is sovereign over all things. For as they pray, they remind one another that God is king. In fact, in fact, the word Lord in verse 24, it's, it's actually different in the original language from the one they use slightly later on in verse 29. They are using here, in verse 24, the strongest possible word to indicate that the person they are praying to has absolute, total, unstoppable power over all things. God is totally in control. And remembering that is the beginning of every solution. The solution to every problem in the Christian life always starts with Sovereign Lord. No matter what we're going through in our lives. Folks, if we understood the heartbreaks that they wear in this room right now, what the person next to you, the person in the row behind you, is going through, I think, would be quite overwhelmed. Some of you, what you're going through, it is unbearably hard. And sadly, with no end in sight. But the starting point to seeing that trial through is always to focus on God's sovereign majesty. We don't start with our troubles. We don't start with our problems. We don't even start with our, our feelings, overwhelming though they may be. We should always start with the God who is sovereignly, who is absolutely sovereign and totally in control. That's where these early believers start. And, and as they do, they see that verse 24, he made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He is the absolute ruler in creation. So this is the God who holds creation in his hands as you, or I, as, as you or I would hold a contact lens on the end of our finger. Well, so what? 
I mean, how does it help to know that God made the flowers and the butterflies and the bunny rabbits and the night skies? When a family member has asked us never to speak the name of Jesus in their presence ever again. Or the PSHE curriculum our kids' school is giving us sleepless nights. Or the Christian and the culture is progressively getting more and more anti-Christian. So that it, it seems to us that the secularists have, secularists have got all the power. Or as was the case for Peter and John here, a bunch of people are threatening your life and trying to ruin your ministry. Well, it helps because if you look back at verse 24, all those people are part of the everything in them bit, aren't they? God also made the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the PSHE coordinators. They may be beyond our reach, but not God's. Their lives are totally in his hands. Do you see verse 25? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. I think this is great. <laughs> is that the original word there for, for, for rage actually uh, it can be translated nay, like a war horse pawing at the ground. Can you, can, you, can you see it? Imagine it. You can't imagine it as I try and act, act it out. You think of one of those majestic animals from the, that Lloyd's advert that's always on the telly these days, raging through some kind of town. I mean, bizarre. But, but think of a, a, an animal like that rearing to get going, to, to get on the attack, but, but held under control by some unseen higher power. That's what David's seeing as he writes Psalm 2. And as he sees that that, that that is how it is in our world, he sees that such, any, any opposition to God and his king is utterly futile. You simply cannot attack God, go up against him, shake your fist at him and win. No matter, how, no matter how powerful others look to humanize, no matter what they try, no matter how angry their snorting on Twitter becomes, they won't win because at the end of the day, God has got a hold of them. I mean, how can you outwit omniscience and defeat omnipotence? It's impossible. They plot in vain. Because this is God's campaign. He is in charge. It's his battle and he cannot be thwarted. Because he is also the absolute ruler of a history. Even when in the current time it all seems to be going against us. I mean, we hear a lot these days from cultural leaders about being, you know, on the right side of history. We're on the right side of history. As if we're the ones that are in control of it. But we are not. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, who thought they were on the right side of history. But, but, and along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they all thought they were on the right side of history in terms of what they were doing. <laughs> but they did whatever your hand 
and your plan had predestined to take place. Even in the death of the Lord Jesus, here the disciples could see that God was totally in control. So at Calvary, on the hill, as Jesus is crucified, Herod and Pilate, wicked men, along with loads of others, they're taking their stand against God and his anointed King Jesus. But this does not cause God to be any less than God. As everything that happened all still moved towards his appointed end. Can I say, you have to be very, very powerful to have your enemies do your bidding while acting against you. It's incredible. And that in no way relieves us from being responsible for our sin. Indeed, if the Bible tells us anything, it says that we can be sure that we will be held accountable one day for our sin. Just like those people around the cross were. And just like the kings and rulers and influencers, the authorities of our day most certainly will be one day. But their actions in no way stop God from being the sovereign king of all things. He's in absolute control. So let's just stop for a minute and think about what this means because this is such a fundamental truth to understand a bit in. So imagine you're a follower. I'm a follower of Jesus in the early church and I'm standing at Calvary and I'm looking up at those three crosses the alleged criminals being crucified. And the one in the center is the one who I call my Lord and my Master. And as he dies, all of my hopes die with him. Everything I've dreamed of dies as he takes his final breath. How could God let this happen? What about God's promises? It's got to be the worst day of my life. But now here in Acts 4, as alongside my brothers and sisters in the early church, as we pray together, we look at the darkest day of our lives and we see in it the very hand of God. Do you see verse 28? Your hand and your plan. As they stood now on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus, they could see that everything that happened on the cross was part of God's plan. The sovereign God of all heaven and earth has, take, has somehow turned the greatest evil into the greatest good. So the disciples say, as they meet with this persecution, well, if God was on con- in control on the darkest day in history, then he's still in control today. The same Lord who is overseeing his own son's crucifixion is the same Lord who watches over them in their persecution. And can I just say, he's the same Lord who watches over you with your heartbreak this morning. And no matter what we're going through, though the pain is deep and the path is winding, it is a wonderful thing to be able to say, or to be able to look at the darkest day in history and say, God was there. God was there because then I can come 
and look at my darkest day, the darkest day in my history, and say, God was there. God is here. And I can trust him. Not merely because he's in total control, but because God is also in the business of turning crucifixions into resurrections. In fact, he has promised to turn the whole, take the whole world through death and judgment and out into a resurrection future of utter glory. That is the path of God's power. And so when we're tempted, as, as we so often are, to think in our suffering that God's power and presence has left us, can I just say, no, no, that's not true. Pick up your Bible. Look at the cross. Suffering is precisely where God's power and presence is at work. God is up to something in our suffering. It's actually where he works. It's how he works. And so like these early believers, that truth should move us, should prompt us to pray. In fact, more than that. Thirdly and finally, God's sovereign power prompts missionary prayer. Did you notice what they prayed for in their troubles? It's incredible. Verse 29, boldness to speak more, to do the things that had got them in this mess in the first place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I don't know about you, but I was being persecuted and threatened. I think the first thing I would have prayed is what I'm often tempted to pray when trouble comes, which is, Father God, <laughs> um, look at the way I've been treated. And if, I, if I'm one of your children, you should do something about this. You should show me you care. Come on, sort this out. Sort them out. Make the problem go away. That's not what these folks prayed for, do they? They pray for more of what that got them into trouble in the first place. They pray firstly for all boldness. And then they pray for signs and wonders, like the one they performed to heal the guy at the start of this chapter. Why? Why do they do that, even though surely more trouble will come of it? Because God's power makes missionaries. It moves folks' heart to want to speak in line with his will and plan. I was reading this week of an Iranian brother called Hamed Ashuri, who was recently sentenced to 10 months in prison back in Iran for, quote, propaganda against the Islamic Republic. He was speaking and standing for Jesus. And so the authorities raid his home and they seize Bibles and other Christian literature and the hard drives off his computers. And as they interrogated him, uh, they offered him financial rewards to grass out other Christians. But he refused. So he was beaten. And do you know what he said after all that? Undaunted and unbowed, he said, I thank God for considering me worthy of enduring this persecution because of him. And folks, that's not an isolated incident. I'm sure 
Some of our brothers and sisters from Iran could tell us many stories like that, and some that are even worse. And the same could be said for our Nigerian brothers and sisters also. It is difficult to get your head around how many men, women, and children have been murdered in Nigeria this year simply for being Christians. More Christians are killed for their faith in Nigeria than in the rest of the world combined each year. Which makes you wonder, why would anyone want to be a Christian in Nigeria? And yet, the church is growing there. And it's growing even quicker in Iran and China and in loads of places where the church is under persecution, the likes of which we have never seen before in the UK. It seems that wherever the opposition is the toughest, the church is growing quickest. Because God's sovereign power prompts prayer and makes missionaries. I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes God's power creates miracles. Like what happens after this impromptu prayer meeting in verse 31. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And then in chapter 5, verse 12, we, we read that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. But in the Bible, miracles aren't actually that common. Times of miracles are clustered around three main points. Moses in the coming of the law. Elijah in the coming of the prophets. And Jesus and his success as the church in act. Acts and the coming of the gospel of grace. In these three places, some quite extraordinary things happen because these signs, they're not the main thing, but they're signposting that what God is doing is something new and different, a new burst of revelation of his purposes. Of course, the odd miracle happened in between, just like the odd miracle happens these days too. I was delighted to hear of a miraculous healing in a friend of mine's church just this week. And so we must pray boldly for miracles. We mustn't let this stop us praying for healing or whatever it is that we need a miracle for. And we must pray for governments and those in authority. In places like Iran and Nigeria, so that they, they govern justly and peacefully for the good of all. But the signs and wonders unleashed in Acts are for a quite deliberate purpose, which we see as we read on in next week's passage, a little spoiler alert in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Sometimes God's power makes miracles, but always it makes missionaries bold to speak of him. That's something we can all count on. So, much as I'm reluctant to sound like a broken record in this series, <laughs> I need to say it again. We've heard it so many times in these chapters. We must pray for boldness. Asking God's spirit to give us the words to speak and then the courage to speak them wherever we live trusting in God's sovereign power. Let's do that right, right now. Let's pray together.
Let me pray. Oh, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You hold all things in the hollow of your hand and you reign over all times and places, bringing resurrections from crucifixions. So help us to trust you, whatever our situation in life this morning. And as we trust you, we ask that you would help us overcome our fear of man and to testify boldly to Christ in a world that rejects him, the one thing they most need, the only name that saves. And we pray too that our brothers and sisters in Iran and Nigeria and Ukraine would continue to faithfully speak your name. May they and we cling to that name and find strength and comfort in all our troubles this day and in all the days to come till you take us home to glory to be with you. Amen.